All right. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you're listening from around the world. Welcome to Women in Environmental Science. I'm Sereni Nantapuntla, and I have um, Katrin with me here today. So thank you so much for coming to my podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, of course. And to get us started, could you elaborate more on who you are, where you're from, and what work you're doing? Yeah, of course. Um, my name is Katrin. I am a geologist. I work at a company called Carbfix, as well as uh, doing my PhD in geology um, in Canada at the University of British Columbia. And I'm from Iceland. Iceland's a very great place to be. <laughs> so can you can you tell me more about your work with Carbfix? Of course. Um, so what Carbfix does is sequester carbon dioxide in rocks. So I'm mainly looking at the type of rocks that we are, um, can use this method in and what other types of rocks. So all the different factors that we need to look at, their composition, their physical properties, and where can we go elsewhere in the world um, to try this technology. Gotcha. So, so like I, I, from doing, from reading about Carbfix, I've, I've learned that um, ultramafic rocks at a certain depth can be used to like store carbon. Um, so why, why ultramafic rocks? Why not like felsic or other kinds? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, ultramafic rocks are really exciting because they have high amount of magnesium, which is a metal that in other rock types is quite uh, rare. Right. But in ultramafic rocks, they can be up to 30, from 36 to 46 percentage of the rock. And some of the minerals that the magnesium is within or part of the crystal structure are really reactive. So that means that when the CO2 comes in, when the CO2 comes in contact with these minerals, they're really fast at dissolving and then can start reacting with the CO2 at faster rates than other minerals. And the magnesium combined with the CO2 can uh, react and together they form stable carbonate minerals. So we are fixing the CO2. Gotcha. I mean, that's, that's really great because we've been producing so much CO2. There's, it's good that we've, we've now come up with a way to, um, uh, like, it's like, it's like uh, mimicking nature's natural way of doing it, just doing it exactly. much faster. Um, yeah, so like, how do we like force the carbon into the rocks? How does that work? So there are a few different technologies out there that are trying to look at it, but the carbfix method that we've now been injecting for 10 years, and that is basically similar to a soda stream machine to make uh, sparkling water. Uh -huh. So we take CO2 from a point source, and currently we're operating in Hedlisede in Iceland, which is a geothermal power plant. So we take the CO2, and we dissolve it in water in something called a scrubbing tower. Uh, so with slightly increasing the pressure, adding a lot of water, you're making a sparkling water. And then this sparkling water gets transported um, via a pipe a short distance to an injection well. And there, the sparkling water is injected into the rocks. And in Iceland, we're working with basalt. Mm -hmm. So they injected into the basalt and between 500 to 1800 meters depth. And there, the sparkling water starts flowing because these rocks are very porous, they have high permeability, and then they react with the rocks and the carbon minerals form. And 
the data suggests shows that it takes less than two years for all the CO2 to get mineralized. So they become permanent uh, fixated in the ground. Gotcha. So they turn into like carbonate minerals, right? Um, for example, exactly. would would limestone be considered a carbonate mineral or like dolomite? Yes, those are carbonate rocks, um, but the ones we're forming in basalt, because it depends on the rock that we're injecting into, Right. Um, the basalt has a lot of calcium, and then we form calcite. It's just the calcium and member of dolomite, but yeah. basically the same. Yeah. Um, I, uh, so, so also, like, the, is the way we're putting the carbon dioxide into the rocks, like, is that way environmentally friendly? Yeah, that's one of the great things about this method. It's a very safe and uh, non-toxic way of doing it. So what a lot of people ask is, is the CO2 not harmful and can it not leak? Um, and the first part of all this process is what we call the solubility trapping. So because the CO2 is trapped in the water in the first place, it doesn't leak or go anywhere because it's in liquid form. And then when we inject it into the groundwater at depth, this CO2 water is denser and colder than the groundwater we're injecting into. So it actually starts sinking. So it doesn't even get to the surface. So it doesn't impact the plants or the animals or the biosphere that's on the surface at all. And then after the carbonate minerals form, they, they are just natural. I mean, we're forming natural minerals that are not harmful or uh, toxic in any way yeah that's that's really great um I'm I'm happy like we've we've come so far from like putting out so much co2 into the atmosphere to now like putting co2 back into the back into the ground and kind of like um rejuvenating our planet and I really like that I like that we're able we've come up with new technology for it um so where do you see this this process or this like the current process you have now um where do you see it improving in the future? The big, the big step is scaling up. So we need to scale up in different fronts um, along with other technology. There's no silver bullets. We need to be doing many things in many fronts at the same time, which is very exciting because we all need to work together and there's no one way to do it. That's right. Um, but scaling up. So we have these three pathways. Uh, we can capture CO2 directly from a power plant. So from just a stream of gas that's coming out of any source, and then we can capture that stream of gas. But we also work with uh, our collaborators at Climax that are capturing CO2 directly from the atmosphere. And that's really exciting. That uh, will be scaling up in the future uh, with different technologies, which is really important because that's CO2 that's already been emitted elsewhere in the world. And we can just capture it and then store it. And then the third way that we're working on is uh, making a mineral storage hub. So that will be capturing CO2 elsewhere and then transporting it uh, to one site where we have the right rocks and where we can do this. And that um, is quite exciting. I actually forgot your question, but maybe that answered. Yeah, absolutely. Like like we're, we're um, like in the future, you're going to be like improving mm. on scaling up. <laughs> and I think that, that that second point you talked about, which was, capturing the climate from the atmosphere. Um, what was that called again? The company we work with is called Climeworks. It's oh. called Direct Air Capture. Right. 
Yeah, I think I, I think I've seen like videos about that. And I think it's really cool that we have all these new, um, innovative, um, kind of like startups working together and like improving themselves. And I think that's um, exactly. it's really cool to see like, where are you working together? So just like kind of doing that all over the globe <laughs> is the way to go. Um, and that's really nice. So, so I wanted, I also wanted to ask is like, this technology seems, seems really, really good, but usually like the two sides of a coin, there's always good, but there's always something um, negative associated with it. So what do you think is that negative thing? If there is any? Yeah, of course, there's some risks and challenges that we need to work on. Um, for example, even though this is not a very energy intensive method, it does use some energy. And that's why it's great that we are positioned now um, next to the greenhouse, uh, sorry, geothermal power plant. So we use green energy mm -hmm. um, because of course we don't want to be using um, a fossil fuel energy to do something like this just for the carbon budget. Uh, another thing is when we're injecting this much water, we need to source the water from somewhere and there's a lot of water. And that's why now we're doing research into trying to check if we can use seawater instead of fresh water. And if we can do seawater, then it will open up loads of places around the world where fresh water is scarce. Absolutely. And also the bottom of the ocean, because most of the bottom of the ocean is made up of basalt and they are reactive rocks. Uh, and one thing that often gets brought up is uh, the risk of seismic activity because we're injecting fluids into the ground. Right. But because we're based on a similar method as the geothermal industry is already using. So the geothermal industry takes up hot fluids from the ground and then use it either to uh, produce steam that makes electricity or takes that hot water directly for heating houses. But then usually it takes the geothermal fluids and injects them back into the ground, which is a very similar technology that we're using. Mm -hmm. And we can control the rate of the injection of the fluid. So, yeah. And we usually have seismic monitors. So if anything starts to move, we can always decrease the rate of the fluid. And we've been doing it now for 10 years and, and it's been working, but we always need to be aware. And of course, it's very site dependent. So when we go to new locations, we always need to check, understand the geology, right. um, both on the surface and at depth. Yeah, you really don't know what's going to happen if you like stick a bunch of fluids in there um any anything Not without the geological characterization right. exactly um and yeah i mean that kind of like seismic activity is also associated with like fracking when you're putting fluids into the ground and like trying to break open the rocks but um it's good that it's still quite different than fracking because that's using gas and a way um deeper and yeah deeper distances and higher pressure Gotcha. So it's a slightly different mechanism. Gotcha. So so they're like they're different, um, which which makes sense. Uh, but yeah, that's that's cool. It's it's interesting to hear like how we how we put it back in and and I mean, like I mentioned, the two sides of the coin. So it's not always perfect, but it's definitely better than what other things we've been doing, and that's that's a big improvement. Um. So now, like, kind of back to you. How how did you get interested in environmental science or, or geology in particular? I've always been interested in rocks. So that's where the geology is. Uh, since I was a kid, I've just been collecting rocks, exactly. They are, they are pretty cool. And 
I always found it so exciting when we traveled, went to new places. I could collect more rocks. <laughs> um, but I was lucky my family went a lot of uh, camping and hiking when I was a kid. So I think I just fell in love with nature growing up. And then when I learned that I could both study geology and actually do something to help in the fight against climate change, I was just, that was it. <laughs> Absolutely. I think it's pretty fun. Yeah, for sure. Like, like what I what I really love about environmental science is like most of uh, environmental and earth science. Most of the people I talk to are just like really really passionate about the subject because it it doesn't really pay well, but it's just like that passion that connection they have, and I and I really really admire um, people working in the, these fields. And also like um, going back to to carb fix like how how where where do you get the co2 from and how is it like shipped to you so the co2 so currently we've been working with the power plant in hetlesele in iceland and we're getting the co2 from there and from the direct air capture but you did mention shipping so we are um planning now this uh, terminal this mineral storage terminal will call, be called the coda terminal and we are planning on uh, from Northern Europe, shipping the CO2 uh, all the way to Iceland and storing it there. And a lot of people ask, does that make sense? Because of course, uh, through the shipping process, you'll, you'll need to emit some CO2 to get the CO2 all the way up to Northern Atlantic. Um, but, but it is in fact worth it. We've done the calculations and it's only a few percentages um, of CO2 that will be emitted for the transport compared to what will be stored. So yeah, gotcha. many different ways. And we can source the CO2 from different industries, um, different gas compositions. That's not a problem. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's good that the technology is able to take such a variety of different factors and, and it still works. So it really shows it's an all-encompassing, well-rounded, um, innovative idea so so kind of um moving moving towards like um i i know right right now you live in canada is that correct mm -hmm. yeah so what so how do you um work at canada and do 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 like work sorry work in canada or be in canada and to have like um employment in iceland like do you do you do like data science projects is that how it goes I've been um, working in the summers. I've been going back and working in Iceland in the office there. And then I just do re uh, remote work now from here, from Canada. Um, I'm helping with understanding and where we can go. So no, not data science, more like understanding geology in different places and looking at the data from what is publicly available and putting all the puzzles together. So yeah. Yeah. Are there any like new upcoming sites that that are um, that, you, that you have in your mind for places that are able to handle that, like the fluids going into the ground with like the geologic um, characterization? Yeah, other than Iceland, we are working uh, well, even within Iceland, we're working now um, in three new places, four new places, quite a few places, uh, which is exciting because they are slightly different composition but they're also an older rocks that are colder so it will 
we'll try learn new things of the technology with the slight differences in um, these different variables. But then we're also doing a pilot project in Turkey and in Germany this year. So we're going to be testing the technology in different geological reservoirs. Uh, the reservoir in Germany is a sedimentary reservoir. So we're going to be understanding more about the CO2 capture and of the injectivity. So different permeability. And in Turkey, the rocks are volcanoclastic metamorphosed rocks. So okay. that's a completely different reservoir, which yeah. is quite exciting. Um, and yeah, and then we will, we're trying, we're in the process of um, going elsewhere and we'll just see which of the projects will actually get the go ahead. And, but it's exciting times. Absolutely. Like, will the, so let's say you're going to implement this in like the, the Germany, um, the site in Germany where you have the sedimentary rocks or the site where you have the metamorphosed rocks. So like, how will the technology, will, will it change or is it just very, very easy to apply at these other sites? We always need to do some retrofits, mm -hmm. like exactly, um, because it's a different um, system. The first part is the CO2 concentration. Mm -hmm. is slightly different on the if we're doing it from a point source or what is the co2 source but we it's um it's a relationship so the higher the co2 concentration the lower the pressure needs to be to dissolve it in water um so we just retrofit that and then um we the rocks are slightly different so the the fluid pathways will be slightly different if it will be uh, mainly through fractures or how will the fluids move um, underground is quite interesting but we we will be monitoring it so we can see what will happen in real time and we can model this beforehand and um, these two reservoirs are very well understood and well known so then we can make assumptions beforehand Got it. Yeah. So how do you like, how do you see um, what's happening in, or model what's happening in real time? Because that seems like very, very cool. We can model in real time. We can model it before and after we start getting data. So we can model it before so we can make some assumptions and we model where the fluid will go mm -hmm. from data that has been collected beforehand. And then we put uh, tracers into these uh, fluids that are non-reactive. So then once the, the CO2 plume is moving underground, starts reacting with the rocks, and then we have monitoring wells that are a distance away, depends on um, the distance in, per site. And then we are collecting the fluid samples once in a while, and we check them for CO2 concentration and for tracer concentration. And then we can see, did it actually happen at this distances or does it take a longer time or how long is it taking to mineralize? All of those questions. Yeah, that's really cool. You're able to just like um, conduct whatever experiments you want with, with, the, with the world. Um, and I think that's, that's really fascinating. So, so out of like some of the research um, that you've done there or, or um, uh, that you've done there, like, what is what do you think has been the most impactful on the technology? Ooh, probably when in the beginning, when the first pilot got um, when we showed that the CO2 actually did form minerals 
at these incredibly fast rates. So mm. before we showed that, it was expected to be hundreds to thousands of years, uh, the timescales, because that's what's happening uh, naturally, basalt naturally sequesters carbon. But we managed to, by injecting CO2 into the subsurface, this is happening faster. So when we showed that it takes less than two years for the minerals to form, I think that's like the big breakthrough. Gotcha. That is quite quite fast on geological yeah. timescales. Absolutely. Like, uh, I, I, know, I know about like the, the, the carbon, um, the carbonate silicate cycle, uh, and just like how, how that, how that is a very, very slow process, but it mm -hmm. still sequesters carbon. Um, and you've, I think, I think that's the cycle that we've really sped up in this technology. Exactly. It was really based on this uh, natural process by mm -hmm. understanding, uh, what the rocks are already doing we can, that's how we manage to accelerate it. So but right, yeah, the, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say the rocks and the land and the ocean and the plants are already um, dealing with the CO2 and the, the earth has been doing this so well. It's just now that we've emitted so much more CO2 than is normal and at such fast rates that we really need to help the earth manage to balance itself back. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I really like that. I, I don't, I didn't think of it that way. Just like there, this, there's already stuff happening and they've been doing so good at it. It's just now we've put out so much. We need to support the earth. Like, yeah, <laughs> which is, exactly. which is a really nice way of putting it. Um, we're all buddies. Um, <laughs> so right now, are we putting like a large amount of CO2 in the rocks that might cause an impact on the geological systems? Like I know we've talked about um, how seismic um, uh, events might occur, but yeah. No, the rates that we're doing it uh, are not going to start affecting any, you mean like farther down in the geological cycle? Yeah. No, we're just talking about a small percentage. So we have the basalt rocks mm -hmm. and within the pores and the vesicles and the the holes in the rock, we're precipitating and forming these calcite or carbonate minerals. And it's just a small percentage of all the porosity. So even if, let's say in hundreds or millions of years that this rock will get subducted by any, we're talking about very long geological timescales, mm -hmm. even if that does happen, the amount of CO2, because the volume is so big, and it's the CO two is spread out in such a big area. Mm -hmm. It's not going to impact anything. Big. Yeah, and so it will be in a millennial away. Gotcha. So we don't need to worry about that. And and like it'll, like I was thinking in the terms of how how it will affect the carbon silicate cycle. And I think like the only thing it does is speed it up, which doesn't, which should like would not have an effect on the cycle itself. So. And carbonate rocks are very natural. They are carbonate, like you mentioned, sandstone and limestone, and all of these sedimentary rocks have CO2 in them, and they are very, we're not doing anything crazy. It's quite natural on the earth. The only crazy thing we're doing is doing it quickly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is a crazy good thing.
So apart from carbon store uh, storage, um, I know some of the some of the work you've done is doing like physical volcanology in Mexico. And I think it's really cool that you've basically been around the world um, and studied all these different geological sites. So what was it like investigating um, and doing like physical volcanology in Mexico? Yeah, I got really lucky to be part of that project. Uh, it was really, really fun. So after my bachelor's, uh, when I finished my geology degree, I went to Mexico to monitor this active volcano. And that included a lot of different methods. Of the volcano and how that changes with time, as well as the temperature. Um, we collected spring water and looked at the pH and how that changes. And yeah, just a really great time. It's such a beautiful country and great to be there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think we missed like the middle part of what you said. Um, I think you like Sorry. no problem at all, no problem at all. But just like the the um the effect of the volcanic eruption on on like the spring, is that correct? So while I was there, the volcano did not erupt, but there's always often these volcanoes that are active, even though they're not erupting, they are still uh, emitting gases. Right. So the gases have CO2 in them mm -hmm. and SO2 and other trace gas compositions. And this can impact the springs. It can impact the air around the volcano. So yeah, we were just monitoring it because if there's a big change, that can tell us that a new eruption might be coming. Oh, nice. Like, like, I think I've, I think I've um, looked into this, like kind of like predicting volcano eruption with the like changes in gases. Um, above yeah. that or trying, it's really hard to trying. actually do it, but we can always try and maybe there won't be a big time before it actually erupts, but we can always, we're trying to get the technology to become better. Right, because I mean, it affects people's li lives. Um, yeah. That's, yeah, it's super, super important for us to be able to do that, but it's not always possible. Just like just like trying to predict earthquakes. It's, we can't just look into the earth and, oh, the earth's gonna. <laughs> I, wish, I wish we could. <laughs> I wish it was Honestly. that simple. And it would just be beautiful to do that. Like the amount of times I've thought, what would it be like to swim in the mantle is just. <laughs> yeah. Or just be in the core and try to like stick a magnet in there, <laughs> which is like crazy. Um, yeah, I mean, studying the volcanoes is cool. Were you, were you using like, um, was that a lot of field work, like looking at mm -hmm. uh, the air? Yeah, we did a lot of field work, um, also some lab work and uh, some com computer work, but it was mostly field work, collecting samples, mm -hmm. um, collecting thermal data, gas data. Uh, we also did some work on lichens, trying to understand the relative age of the lava flows in the past hundred years. So understand what has happened, how often has the volcano been erupting? Oh, wow many exciting projects so and I love when it all comes together with different like we were using biology by looking at the lichens so you're bringing together different disciplines um, by understanding the volcano history yeah I mean I've never heard of that like using lichens to look at the age of the 
past volcanic flows? Yeah, we were trying it. It it wasn't very accurate, but at least to see the relative timing. Right. Yeah. But then we have to understand the lichens, and they vary. There are so many different types of lichens, and they their growth speeds um, depend on the sunlight, the temperature, the moisture content. So of course, the higher up the volcano uh, mountain you go, it it's slower because it's colder up there. So there were a lot of factors that we needed to bring together, but it was a pretty neat project. Um, yeah. And then we also looked at lava bombs. So in some of the older historical eruptions, there were these lava bombs that got shot quite far distances. So just looking at how far did they get, um, if they can cause any concern in the future, because now people are living so close to the volcano. That's true. Which is kind of like, Hmm, I wonder why this decision was made to to live so close to the volcano. I know in um in Italy, uh, I forgot the name of the oh Mount Etna. Um, a lot of people live really close to that, and just like looking at its past eruptions and where it's gone, it's kind of like I wonder. It's, I wonder it's very common uh, all over the world. That's true. And the main often the reason is that the soil around volcanic volcanoes is very fertile because of the sulfur contents of them so all over the world um it's a common theme but it does cause problems right right that's i mean yeah i mean that's true like the the soil is very fertile which makes sense to live near there but also a life hazard (laughs) (laughs) and often people just didn't know Uh, when people arrived to these places they thought oh this is great there's land to farm it's beautiful and they don't think about that the volcano is still active they maybe think it's just an old extinct volcano yeah i mean so many factors so like with with that um i wanted to ask you just a very informal question do you have a favorite rock yes of course (laughs) (laughs) Uh, my favorite rocks are the ones that i'm studying now they're called serpentinites They're beautiful. They are green. They're named that because of they look like serpents, like snaky texture and colors. So you can imagine how nice they are. And they also have a high potential for sequestering carbon. So pretty cool rocks. <laughs> Absolutely. I think there's a, a lot of serpentinite in California, if I remember. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And I and they're like um from what I remember, like they're formed when you have like just um, so really, really hot fluids entering rock and kind of serpentinizing them. It can be really hot, but it can also be temperatures lo- as low as 25. Oh, wow. It's a big range. Um, but yes, exactly. You're correct. It's water um, that's changing the minerals in the rock. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. And just like knowing that there is a bunch of types of rocks that are that are available to store carbon in them is shows how applicable this technology is to the rest of the world. Um, exactly. That's yeah. the exciting parts. Yeah, I mean that means we really do have a chance in um in reducing our CO2 greatly. And I think that this this will go very, very far. And another so another question I wanted to ask is like there it's so, so there's a bunch of people um, who think climate change doesn't occur um, or is not, sorry, it does occur, but like it, it isn't caused by people. Um, so if you had a chance to talk to them and change their mind, 
Um, what would you say? And would you even want to do that? I'd always want to, but it's sometimes maybe hard to get the conversation started. But if you do get the chance, um, I heard recently from a talk by a climate scientist, I don't remember their name, but they recommended that it's always good to start with the things you have in common and to start on a level ground of like, okay, what do we both enjoy or what do we both value? And I, I found that really beautiful. And I think that's a really good way because then you make a connection and data has shown that humans are very emotional creatures and people make decisions from how they feel versus data. So often a graph is not going to change someone's mind, but maybe more stories and the connections that you build. So for example, you could maybe live in the same city. So you both experienced the same forest fire last year, or maybe you have some story like that that can bind people or the energy prices are going up. Hmm, why are the energy prices going up? Conversations like that I find interesting. Mm -hmm. And then of course, it's always good to point out the things that we actually know, because of course there are many uncertainties in science and we haven't figured everything out yet, but there are some crucial important things that we know and are very well proven. And that is that when uh, fossil fuels, oil, gas, and coal are burnt, CO2 forms. That is a known fact. And we know that with more CO2 in any area, if it's the atmosphere around the earth, or we can try this on a lab experiment at home, we can just put some glass bottle and put a lot of CO2 in it. We know that that is a greenhouse gas and that can increase the temperature. So that is a fact, we know that. And we also know that since the Industrial Revolution, we've been collecting data and we know that the CO2 in the Earth's atmosphere is increasing. So if we just lay out the facts and then we maybe don't know exactly how these factors will affect the next climate. How does it affect the weather systems? How does it affect the clouds or the glaciers, et cetera, et cetera. But I think, yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah, absolutely. That that was beautiful. I think that's just like some something anyone listening to this podcast can take away from that. Like how to how to talk to those people. I mean, like learn learn things from that. Like um, we really are living in uncertainty. We don't we don't know exactly what our what our, the effects are, but we do know there are bad effects. Um, mm-hmm. uh, there's things about like the the AMOC cycle being affected, and that will really affect us. Um. I know, I know one, one strategy is like, I think, I think the movie was, uh, the day after tomorrow where like the AMOC stopped, um, or the day before, I forget the name, mm. of the title. Um, yeah. but it was like the AMOC stopped and everything went haywire, um, everything. And, and that's like a common movie people have watched. So just like bringing that up, um, when communicating with people and yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think it also is like sometimes it's not important to change people's minds, but more just like get get our pl- climate plans in action um, and get policy to change. Yeah, exactly. Like the big decisions. But I love, it's also beautiful, I think, to start thinking about we can drop seeds. And even if people haven't fully changed their minds by the end of the conversation, they maybe take that one seed away. And I few months later they'll maybe think about that conversation again and you can start something yeah absolutely 
And just like from that, um, it shows us the importance of environmental uh, literacy um, and like how important scientific communication is to it is to the general public. Um, so what are what are some ways um, that you may that you may suggest other people or that may that you maybe have done um, scientific outreach? Well, scientific outreach is so important. Communication. Um, what I would suggest is just to talk to people, talk to everyone around you. Um, it doesn't matter who it is or. And I heard recently that it takes it's three connections to 100 people or something like that. So if you talk to 10 people and those 10 people talk to other 10 people and those 10 people talk to other 10 people, you've already reached a large amount of people. And I find that really hopeful because it really does matter, these small communications, even if you're not writing in the newspaper or even if you're not doing the big things, like even just talking to your friends and your parents and your family does go a long way absolutely like the like small small changes lead to very very big ones across across the world so that's that's a really beautiful thing to to keep doing and super optimistic and definitely like the environmental science nature is just to just to believe in that if we make small changes we can really impact the world which i think is very true and I wanted to ask, like, throughout throughout your career so far, you've you've done so much awesome work. And I want to know if you had any advice for any young young people in environmental science, um, or or geology and earth science. Um, these are great questions, by the way. I think just keep going. You know, like Dora and Nemo, just keep swimming. It doesn't matter if it's maybe, and just be yourself and. Because there's so many different ways to get to the same endpoint. There's a lot of discussion now about the different pathways. So even if even if you want to go and study more uh, the biology side of things, you can, and you still want to go and end up in environmental. It doesn't really matter exactly which way it will take you, as long as you're enjoying it, and you kind of find your niche, or you or you try different things, but just like keep doing that because that's what gets you to some point and you can always change your mind but I also want to mention uh, that environmental science is really an interesting interdisciplinary discipline it it brings together people from geology biology uh, engineering um, but also the social part so we also have the law the policy and we need to understand human behavior because it's the humans that are interacting with the environment and the nature so I find that really exciting and I personally wish that I'd probably taken more different types of courses or gone to different types of events in earlier I'm doing it now but I find it so interesting how it all comes together and I think in essence that is really what environmental science is because we're talking about different scales we're talking about how all the different factors interact with each other yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think on every single podcast we've we've talked about the interdisciplinariness of environmental science, and it's so true. Like, and and it's so it's something that is really hard um, to recognize because usually when people think of what they want to do, it's like this mm -hmm. one specific thing. But just like understanding that environmental science is really hard to pin down. It's so broad. It affects like anything. You you 
you go out in a car um you're affecting like the air the the rocks um the like how it was made so like the minerals used to make that car just mm -hmm. like all yeah. those different connections are associated with this one action and it's really beautiful that it's so perfectly or or imperfectly which makes it perfect or beautiful um it's so like nicely put together and i i love that about environmental science me too <laughs> <laughs> and, and also we we do now need we need because it's such an interesting and devastating problem that we're facing uh, with climate change, we need new solutions and we need new minds and we need different perspectives. So we need to think things outside of the box that haven't been thought about before. And we need all of the solutions. So I think it's really great that people just go in different ways and maybe that pathway hasn't been taken before, but they make some new connections and look at the problem from a new from a new side. Absolutely. Um, and lastly, just to close off our lovely conversation, um, are there any other like interesting experiences that you would like to share just from your career or while you were working on research? I last year i was um i got to go to some really cool field work up in um, central british columbia in canada and it was really fun because coming from iceland we don't have many animals and in canada they have a lot of animals so like even though i was um very comfortable with like the rocks and there's some parts that you think you're like, yeah, I got this. But then there are bears in Canada. And then you have a totally new, <laughs> there's always new things to learn and to experience. So Absolutely. I think, yeah. And I, I, I hope that I will forever just keep seeing new things and I'll get surprised again and again. <laughs> as that's long like as it's the, safe. <laughs> that's true. Um, that's like the best part of life, just like experience new things you've never come across. And I think, I think with field work, you'll definitely have stuff like that. Just <laughs> a bear creep up on you while you're, while you're trying to look at a rock. <laughs> and if anyone would like to reach out to you, I know I reached out to you through email. So if that's the best way, um, where can they do so? Yeah. Um, I'm relatively active on Twitter. They can people can follow me there or find me on email or in any other way I'm always open for connections wonderful yeah I'll put I'll um put your twitter handle and if you can send that over to me later on um, I'll put it yeah. in like the podcast description and your email for anyone uh, and then there's also uh, the carb fix website has a lot of information and has social media that are is very active so you can be up to date on all the new carb fix uh, research and work and they also have an email as well yeah absolutely I was I was just on that I was on that website um while preparing for the podcast and I think that website's like so beautifully designed and like makes the information very very clear so it was really really um transparent which is a really important thing to have nowadays um and yeah well thank Great. you so much for our thank you conversation this um, was for mine just to remind our listeners, we've been speaking to Katrin, and I really want to thank you for your time talking to me about rocks um, and how we can store carbon in the ground, which is this 
very new innovative um an, an innovative um, solution to, to to global warming and i think it'll go very very far um and i really appreciate it um and thank you so much thank you and thank you to the listeners for listening and just for this episode i just want to say rock on <laughs> <laughs>